for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagay. Super excited to get to know today's guest. He's been called by several of his contemporaries the greatest program director in the history of WJPZ, although he would never tell you that himself. His resume would take me the entire podcast to read to you here. A couple highlights. KUBE Seattle, VH1, Epic Records, Apple Music. Now the director of global programming for Amazon Music. He's got a bachelor's in 91, a master's in 93. So he knows many, many classes. You may know him as T-Bone. Mike Tierney, welcome to the podcast. What's up, Jag? How you doing, man? Good to see you. Good to be here. And it was uh, Carl Weinstein, actually, that hooked us both up. So I'm excited to hear more of your story and a lot of the crazy stuff that happened during your tenure at the radio station. Let me start off. Where'd you grow up and how'd you find out about Syracuse and the radio station? I should first of all say that, like, this is, it's pretty apropos that Carl connected us because basically all that I have and all that I am, I owe to Carl Weinstein, <laughs> uh, who was the program director when I was the assistant program director. Okay. Basically him. I'm going to tick the like shout out box of like my lifelong friends first. Please. Carl, Kevin, Tippy Martinez. Those two guys I'll be paying like back couch rent to for like the rest of my life. <laughs> and Jam and James Mahoney was the assistant PD when I was the PD. We're, that's like my brother. We're like still kind of best friends to this day, do fantasy baseball together and mm-hmm. all that. And then uh, I got to shout out Gigi Katz, who was the music director when I was the program director. Still, you know, kind of one of my favorite people in the world. We were born the same hour of the same day. Like she was born in California. I was born in Indiana. We wow. were PD and MD at the same time. I got to imagine that's the maybe the only time that that's ever happened that the PD and MD were born at the same time. That's a fate, JPZ kismet gods or something. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It really is. And Gigi was like one of the best natural DJs I've ever heard. Like not only at Data Nine, but ever. She was so good and she just didn't care. Like she was just there for fun. Her claim to fame was that she had an outfit to match the cover of every Madonna single. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So she'd roll into the station dressed like La Isla Bonita, which is <laughs> my personal favorite. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, incredible ears, incredible taste in music and those music meetings, especially when it was, you know, kind of Mahoney will tell you to this day that I was wrong. I was too conservative about uh, Public Enemy and NWA. And he's <laughs> absolutely right. History, I think, is on his side. I think there was a line there I drew. I don't remember why. And um, and then Gigi had like the kind of Madonna cover girls, sweet sensation side of things covered. It was a it was a pretty formidable uh, music meeting and music meetings can be tough. Yeah. And those were pretty intense ones, but they were uh, they were super fun. You know, Hollywood Howe came along. I think he was part of uh, of some of those. It was a pretty, uh, pretty great group. Glad to hear you name all those names because so many of the names that we've had on the podcast so far have mentioned you by name. So, yeah. So tell me, so you said you grew up in Indiana. How do you end up at Syracuse uh, and then the radio station? I actually was born in Indiana. Okay. I was highly there. My, my dad was in school at uh, in Notre Dame. I grew up in Syracuse. Oh, you did? Okay. Went to Nottingham. Go Bulldogs. I grew up like half a mile from Manly Fieldhouse. Like, okay. pretty much all of my friends' parents were professors. We grew up on campus. Like, we were those kids, the kind of, you know, bad, towny kids, like, <laughs> going to, <laughs> sneaking into UU movies and 
going to the UU concerts. And there was, when I started my teen years, I think the drinking age was still 18 and then it went to okay. 19. So we could get into the G bar and the, then the Jabberwocky when we yep. shouldn't have been able to. And uh, like just kind of low level mischief, not anything, you know, kind of that rose to the felony level, but uh, we were, <laughs> you know, kind of those kids. And I was in Bird Library. It was June of 1986. I have no idea. I had no reason to be in Bird Library, but <laughs> there we were. My buddy Adam, and there was a flyer on the bulletin board that said Z89 was looking for summer interns. Uh, students, non-students, whatever. Um, I think Z89 on FM was a couple years old at that point. I listened. Sounds about right, yeah. Yeah. The music was great, and so I kind of knew all about it, and I was like, that sounds super interesting. I'm pretty sure the call to action was not like walk directly to the radio station like right now, but that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, snooze, snooze, you lose. I didn't want to like kind of miss out. I like, or, you know, kind of have it be um, all the slots be filled or whatever. I wandered into the station that night. I don't remember who was there. It was somebody who was on the air. Obviously, it was probably, you know, seven o'clock at night. It was probably somewhere like that summer. It was someone like Diamond Jim Ryan or Rock and Ron Chanel. But I do remember there was like an orientation the next day. Went to orientation. It was Diamond Jim Ryan and Christy Perry who led it. It was the first summer that Z and I tried to stay on the air. They had always kind of gone dark over the summer. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. And it was like those two, Diamond Jim and Christy, like they did it. They kept the station on the air. Carl was still around. And that was kind of one of the magical things. It was 1986. And so the recent grads, Happy Dave, Rocco Macri, Chris Bungo, they were hanging around like they hadn't kind of pieced out yet. And so I would eventually have a chance to meet them, you know, kind of at the beginning of that summer. Cool. Carl, I think, hung around for the beginning of the summer. And I kind of remember him coming in late to the orientation. I don't remember much else about the orientation, although it was the first time that I kind of got turned on to, you know, clocks and rotations, all that stuff that like kind of growing up listening to the radio, like you knew were things kind of finding out that they were things and i kind of uh went through orientation i'm pretty sure i shadowed that night i'm almost positive i did my first like two to six that night like that like maximum right, it just was right in right away because they needed the help over the summer they were just trying to keep the station on the air it, it was maximum like three days between bird library <laughs> and my first uh and my first air shift that's amazing yeah, I can say for sure that the number of people who heard my first Z89 break was zero, not because nobody was listening, but because the guy who was on 11 to 2 came in after my first talk up and told me the mic had been an audition. And uh, so uh, I needed to put it in program. I was off to You'd a... You'd be surprised uh, how often a story like that has come up on the podcast. Either I didn't pot the mic up enough, I didn't turn the pot on, I, it was in audition. That has happened to a lot of guests oh, yeah. on this podcast so far. Yeah, it's super nice. I can't remember who it was. It was the 11 to 2 person. Couldn't have been nicer about it. I was so stressed. I do remember it was like an amazing, amazing talk up of Invisible Touch by Genesis. I can yes. tell you to this day, the post was 16 seconds long. You can look that up. And I know also that uh, I had my Latin final at Nottingham later that same day. I think I went <laughs> home at six, like took a shower, went to school, took my Latin final. And then, uh, by the time I graduated Nottingham, I'd done my first top eight at nine and oh my god yeah it was crazy i was about to say i was off to the races the first top eight at nine i got uh, i definitely was not ready and the reason i got it was because literally everyone else at the station went to vernon downs and they, they just wanted to go have fun at the racetrack and i was maybe i wasn't 18 
they didn't care if I was, you know, there for the the racetrack or whatever. And Priorities. I they just threw me on the air. Yeah, totally. Somebody's got to go on there, put the kid on. Uh, so it seems like it's predestined at this point that you go to SU, right? Yeah, but I wasn't. I decided I was going to go to Fordham. Oh, wow. In the Bronx. Yeah. I don't exactly remember why, but summer ended and that summer was so much fun. Like in my memory, the DJs, which was like a few of us like townie kids, there was a kid named Danny O'Day who had turned up and he was great. And another guy named Just Plain Joe, like some students who were around, Kristen Sloan was around, um, a guy who called himself Dexter Smith. Dexter Smith. <laughs> Dexter Smith was an amazing Z89 ZJ. It was just so much fun. Like in my memory, like I've had periods, you know, kind of where I've been looking for weekenders and they've been hard to find. Like everybody who was on the air that summer was just great on the air. Yeah. And so summer ends, I'm getting ready to go away to school. And then, you know, kind of the students start coming back and it's like, it's Larry Barron, it's Hotshot Scott Bergstein, it's Rusty Burrell. And I'm still doing shifts and stuff because they haven't even, you know, kind of had orientation and gotten the students, you know, sort of back on the schedule and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I meet all of those guys. And it's kind of like, I didn't know people like that. Like, you know, kind of like they were so smart and so serious and kind of, you know, I mean, they were having fun, but they like had ideas about what they were going to do with their lives. Like, you know, kind of Larry and Scott <laughs> already knew they were going to go to, you know, kind of Hollywood and like Carl Weinstein wanted to own radio stations. Like that was right. his sort of stated goal, right? I didn't know how to own a radio station. <laughs> and I was definitely looking for that. I lost my father when I was a teenager and I didn't mm -hmm. really have any sort of idea about how to have a life. And I pretty much picked Fordham semi at random. But I leave all those folks behind, like super impressed, like having been on the air all summer. And I get to Fordham, which is an amazing radio station. WFUV is like a... 50,000 watt flamethrower that a friend of mine runs now. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of like, everybody you know knows this story. It's like, you know, maybe you'll kind of hang out your freshman year, like empty trash buckets your sophomore year. We'll teach you how to write and produce your junior and maybe you can get on the air. Yeah. You know, when you're a senior and I was just like, I'm F this. Like, yeah. I've been doing it, you know. I just got to get back there. So I basically applied to transfer to SU right away. Newhouse didn't take applications for the spring semester, so I applied to arts and sciences, got in, and like literally I did one semester at Fordham and then was back at Syracuse to start the spring semester. So what year is that? January of 87 would have been okay. when I started. And so my classmates were Gigi and, and Scott Meach. I, I got there with the, the class of, of 90. Got Carl it. immediately made me his APD. I don't remember what the circumstances for that were. If he had to swing somebody, give him the zig. But I, so, <laughs> I somehow end up being the APD. And Scott's the MD. Gigi's her assistant music director. And we were like the, you know, that was the squad there. I think I maybe was taking, you know, kind of whatever, six credits. I, I, I really did have like a red shirt freshman season a lot because of the radio station so i ended up graduating in uh, in 91 and, and kind of did su and jpc on the, the five-year plan and this is really we've, we talked about this era of the radio station kind of the flamethrower era you guys are giving away cars at the state fair you guys are just killing it at that point you mentioned all the names but you know what was it like to be part of the station during those days where it's pulling ratings and 93 q's all pissed off because you're pulling ratings away from them like it take me inside it was really, uh, it was insane, that part of it. Uh, I, I think that 
Jag, like I know probably everybody you've had on the podcast will insist that like the best music in JPZ history was the music the four years they were there. Yeah. Some of them might be right, but they can't all be right. And the main reason they're not right is that the late 80s was the best era for music <laughs> in JPZ history. It was insane. I was like literally just thinking about this. It was Madonna, Michael, Janet at their peak. It was Whitney and Bobby, LL Cool J, Run DMC, Beastie Boys, George Michael, like the best U2 album, the best In Excess album. Uh, Gem Master Andy Redditor would be mad if I didn't shout out Debbie Gibson, but like the, <laughs> the pop, Debbie Gibson and Tiffany and Paula Abdul, the music was so good. It's literally one of the things I've, I've kind of learned as a programmer is that like you're really only as good as the music. The music will make you look smart and really where you kind of earn your living as a programmer is when it's a doldrums, right? When the music isn't good is when you really have to kind of gut it out. But the music was so good and the music meetings were so much fun. And there was, it actually coincided with an incredibly lame, especially lame period in the storied history of WNTQ in Syracuse. <laughs> they were so lame I and mean, they were terrible. Basically, I mean, in their defense, you know, they had Y94, which was a really good radio station on one flank. Mm -hmm. And so they were trying to cheat and lean, you know, kind of a little bit of adults, a little bit adult. And we just came up and just shoved it up their ass. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I specifically remember, it must have been the summer of 87, when I Want Your Sex was yep. like the biggest song of the summer and they wouldn't play it. And there was a like newspaper, there's a Post Standard article about why they wouldn't play it. And we were just like playing it every hour. Yeah. And then kind of LL had I Need Love and they wouldn't play it. And then they maybe put it in, you know, in nights. It's one of the most important records of the decade in a lot of ways. And we never day-parted anything really. Like certainly yeah. not because it was like, you know, hip hop or whatever. We were just- or too racy, yeah. Yeah, we were just smashing the hits and kind of the reactive fun hits that everybody really wanted to hear. And they were, you know, kind of super- adult top 40 and it just was easy and it's actually another thing that i learned well that was the um, one of those summers mm -hmm. they actually called the university and people talked about this and they called the university and and tried to get us to stop to stop to just stop trying so hard to to stop doing what 93Q we were doing called the university and 93Q said, called the university oh my God. and said that and said they shouldn't be doing this it's a student-run radio station why are they essentially up our asses make them stop I don't remember who they called. It was someone at the administration who, of course, talked to Rick, mm -hmm. who kind of, you know, comes over as like, <laughs> T-Bone. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like, you'll never guess. And I'm like, Rick, fuck them, right? right? And he's like, yeah, I think fuck them, T-Bone. <laughs> and so uh, it was just, <laughs> I kind of like, we had literally like sort of stolen their professional pride at that point. Like, can you imagine like any JPZ -er in history I want you to imagine like begging the competition to like stop. You know what I mean? Like it would, it would, it would never happen. Uh, I remember it being basically because of, you know, George Michael and LL Cool J. It could have been because of the whatever, the famous 8.9 uh, in Birch that we had. But it was like that era. And that was another thing that I learned, you know, kind of to this day. Like it's sort of like the Bill Belichick Sun Tzu thing of like, if you wait long enough by the river, the body of your enemy will come floating downstream. Like <laughs> we were merciless. And that's where I learned that kick in 93Q. Yeah. As a Patriots fan, <laughs> I always appreciate a good Bill Belichick or Sun Tzu reference. Oh, yeah. All right. So the flip side of this, obviously the station is kicking ass and taking names. 93Q is, you know, wounded in Khan University. Please make them stop. They're kicking our asses. 
But on the more serious side, and, and Carl talked about this in the podcast and others have as well, this was also a time where there was a real threat to the format of the radio station in the late 80s. Station is on FM, and the uh, Student African American Society comes in, and Hotshot Scott talked about this in his episode as well. And they're like, hey, we want more representation. We want to be more of a, a typical college format radio station and have different types of shows and different viewpoints. And you're coming in and saying, no, we are teaching students how to be a top 40 radio station. What do you remember about that period and the difficulties of that whole situation? I mean, I get it. I got it then, and I get it you know, kind of to this day, like the point of view of anybody. I loved, you know, kind of alternative music. Yeah. I, I kind of, this is probably where I should point out that uh, for the record, I never wanted to be Bob Costas, Jag. So you're not on my tote board. Okay, got it. All right. Yeah, I like keep me off that tote board. I was basically a music guy. Yeah. I, I kind of have always been a music guy first and foremost. Like when I saw that flyer at Bird Library, it was like, oh my God, I can go in there and play music, right? And growing up in Syracuse, you know, kind of their art, many ways for you to do anything like that has anything to do with music. Right. So when I walked in the station, it was still, it was the end of the um, future radio era. Yep. And there were still all the records that I loved, you know, kind of in gold town called malice by jam. I still remember when Carl and I were like sort of flushing out the gold and he pulls out the index card for a jam town called malice. And is like, T-bone, this is going to break your heart, <laughs> but I don't think it stays. <laughs> But my heart was with, I loved, you know, kind of alternative, what we now call alternative, new wave, you know, kind of college rock, whatever. I loved hip hop, like from Curtis Blow, The Breaks. Sure. Those were my, you know, kind of jams. And I think I got sort of gradually, you know, kind of brainwashed into the whole power hits thing. I loved it. But I, and I loved, you know, kind of, I think this was the whole point. I loved the education part of it. Mm -hmm. And I also, I loved the shows that we, you know, kind of Saturday Night Dance Jam and the the Love Flight, you know, kind of which, you know, were small compromises that got made out of that period. But, you know, yeah, we should have been, you know, kind of doing that. We should have been doing more of that. I think Carl and I were talking the other night, like the original Power Hits shift was so tight. It was so tight. It was tighter than any top 40 station I've ever programmed, you know, kind of commercially when Carl first switched it to Power Hits. Mm hmm that was the real flamethrower. And we gradually got to a point where I really think we were playing the music that people on campus were listening to anyway. Again, by the late 80s, like if there was alternative crossover, U2 in excess, like I said, we played it. Yeah. We were playing, you know, kind of the music we were playing that was kind of hip hop and, and R&B was the same stuff I was playing when I DJed at Braggs. And it mm -hmm. was like the dance floor Packers. It was what the students were listening to. So I think like after things settled in, even from my POV, we really were playing, you know, kind of reflecting the taste of the people on campus, the sort of, you know, kind of somewhat broad, you know, kind of taste of, of people on campus. But it, it really stopped being a thing to an extent because the playlist loosened up and, mm -hmm. and the music got better and, and more diverse. And I think that, I mean, one of the things that I really took away from that personally was just anybody who wanted to change it could come and walk into the station, apply get on the air, hang out, you know, kind of get involved, run for senior staff and, and kind of like, if you really like we're here, you want to kind of, you know, change something like, you know, come on down and, and make a difference. And the fact that I like, everybody probably says it like the smartest, most talented people I've ever worked with in my career were the people that I worked with at, you know, JPZ hands down. Sure. Never had a team, you know, of that caliber. Everybody just wanted to win. 
And I feel like we didn't have anybody telling us what to do, right? Like there was a pressure from outside. I honestly think like kind of the great gift that Professor Wright gave us all of those years was giving us air cover, like with the university when we need it. But he never told us what to do. Like he just really let us get on with it and let us kind of teach one another. And the lessons I learned there, you know, kind of I, I still kind of used to this day. And I think it was just making JPZ the best media classroom on campus. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. So you mentioned the lessons learned and all the stuff that you took with you in your career as you start to get to your career. So you get your undergrad in 91 and then you so you had the redshirt year in the front end and then you have the uh, two additional years of eligibility in the master's after that. Do I have that right? <laughs> yeah, that absolutely right. You yeah. are the Van Wilder of WJPZ? I 100% am. If you like Happy Dave and them, I got to shout out Happy Dave because he shouted out me and that was like the highlight of my career so far for so <laughs> shout out Happy Dave. Like those guys in the class of 86, like probably started in 82. And then the people who started the year I got my uh, master's probably graduated in 96 or something like that. So if you went to Syracuse between 82 and 96. Yes, that's fantastic. You might have known me. We might have crossed paths. Yeah, I am that guy. Yeah. So you're there two additional years. You get your master's and you've had quite the career in the 30 years since. Take me through some of the places you've been, some of the things you've done for those who aren't familiar with your story. Uh, the first thing that happened was that I kind of knew during my grad school season, there was a moment where I think I was watching Even Flow by Pearl Jam on MTV. And I was like, fuck this. I'm going there. <laughs> like I grew up with kind of, you know, sort of baby boomer parents who kind of made me feel like I had missed all the cool stuff. Like something <laughs> cool had happened in there and I'd missed it. And I was like, this is just light people like having their moment. I'm not missing this. And Kevin and Carl, Kevin Martinez and Carl Weinstein had moved to Seattle and were, were working for the Mariners. And I'd kind of gone out there and spent some time with them the summer between undergrad and grad. So when I finished my master's, there was no doubt in my mind I was getting on a plane, one-way ticket to Seattle, and I was just going to crash on their couches for as long as it took. And I had met some, you know, kind of media people through them, you know, kind of during my travels. And there was a guy named Randy Irwin, who's still, you know, kind of one of my best friends to this day who was the ballpark DJ for the Mariners, basically. Oh, wow, okay, yeah. And he was the music director of KPLZ in Seattle, and he called me and was like, I'm leaving to go work at Sony. Casey Keating needs a music director. You need to call him. Wow. Yeah. So I called Casey Keating, and you know, kind of he kind of brings me in for an interview. Casey is an amazing guy. He was a really great mentor to have. Uh, we hit it off in you know, kind of a job interview and all that. And I'm like, oh my God, I think this might be happening. And Casey says, I want to make you kind of music coordinator first. And then if it works out, we'll put you, you know, kind of on on salary and you'll be the music director. Wow. I'm like, that sounds amazing. And he's like, and you know how to run Selector, right? Now, I had sort of run Selector because Carl was programming a radio station in like Lansing, Michigan. And I kind of went up there on a weekend to help him load his Selector database, right? Yeah. And then we had scheduling software at Z89 that was like a competitor and it was Mac based or whatever. Like I knew what it was, right? 
So in the moment, I looked at Casey and I said, yeah, I know how to run Selector. <laughs> and he's like, all right, then you got the gig. And I, I was like, can I take the manual home and like you know, kind of brush up <laughs> over the weekend? And the manual was like the phone book. I don't oh, know if yeah. you've ever seen the, the Selector manual. Now for our younger listeners, a phone book. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Everything about this, like, you know, what's that? So I took it home. I was on Kevin's couch that weekend. Yeah. I'll never forget it. And I kind of just casually, you know, sort of inhaled the uh, selector <laughs> manual that weekend. And then I went in on Monday to KPLZ, did the music logs for Tuesday and kind of wow. eventually, like within a few weeks or months, I don't remember, you know, ended up being the music director of KPLZ. This is like literally a few months after I left SU. Probably seeing those F keys in your sleep at that point after reading that whole <laughs> manual, right? Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, I literally, I was there seven days a week. I was doing, you know, kind of weekend shifts. I was mm -hmm. doing all the logs. I had done an internship at Hot 97, you know, kind of shout out Rocco. But this was really my first radio station besides Z89. And I was there for it. And it was the period where Dr. J, The Chronic and, you know, kind of Nirvana were on Top 40 Radio. Yeah. You know, for a minute, it was super fun. I was at KPLZ the day that uh, Kurt died, wow. pouring out. And um, yeah, so yeah, that was my first station, KPLZ. And then about nine months into it, I got the zig. I got <sighs> laid off. The station had gotten sold. It, this ended up being sort of more important than the first thing. The first thing is, if anybody asks you if you have a skill that you can reasonably teach yourself over the weekend, lie, <laughs> get the job, and teach yourself a skill over the weekend. That's good advice, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Then the second thing is the rug gets pulled out from under me, right? Like at this point, I'm just unemployed in Seattle. I'm literally back to, to where I started. You're back to Carl and Kevin's couches. I at least had my own couch, but like how was I going to kind of keep paying rent at that point? Right. My job was gone. And then somehow I kind of got connected with uh, a guy named Bob Case, who was the PD of Cube, which was KPLZ's competitor. And to be honest, they were kicking KPLZ's ass. Mm -hmm. They had gone full crossover. Uh, they were Cube 93 jams, and it was a bloodbath, right? And that was part of why, you know, the KPLZ sale went down. KPLZ had been owned by, um, this is just great to say, Gene Autry, the cowboy. Oh, wow. Used to own a bunch of radio stations. Okay. Yeah. And so that was my first signature on my radio paychecks was ah. Gene Autry, the cowboy. So he sold it, and I just sort of figured out they wanted Casey gone, right? They wanted the PD gone. So they sort of took away his company car and he didn't leave. They literally took away his guy, right? That was me. I was just collateral damage. He didn't leave. <laughs> but eventually he gets the job at Y100 in Miami. And so as I'm talking to Bob Case at Seattle, Casey circles back and Casey's general manager circles back and he starts talking to me about doing Casey's job, right? So I end up in this weird freaking like kind of situation where I literally get offered the program director job of KPLZ and the program director job of Cube at the same time. Wow. And I'm 25 and like not a year out of SU and not a few months from getting laid off. So I kind of just thought about it at the time and two things kind of significant. The first was that KPLZ had gone hot AC and as cool as it would be to be a 25 year old PD, like I could be playing Celine Dion or I could be playing <laughs> Dr. Dre. And it was like, <laughs> that was, that was no contest. But the other thing that happened, Cube wanted me to be on the air and KPLZ was an off air PD. And I remember at that time thinking that I, I didn't want to be on the air anymore. Really? I wanted to be an off air PD. Yeah. I, again, I didn't want to be Bob Costas. I, I wanted to be a program director and I wanted to be a really good program director. And so I basically made that choice based on, I think it was like, there was like $5,000 more in salary at KPLZ and I didn't have to be on the air. 
And so I went to Bob Case at Cube and, and I was like, yeah, I think I'm just going to go do this for KPLZ. He's like, what? Why, why the fuck would you do that? And I was like, oh, I don't want to be on the air. It's like a little bit more money. And he's like, kid, like, seriously, like, you just don't want to be on the air. And I'm like, no, nah. he's like, you're good. I'm like, I, I just don't, I won't be able to pay enough attention to the job yeah. if I have to be on the air for, you know, kind of four hours a day. So he was like, all right, you have to promise me you'll do a couple of weekend shifts a month. Cause it's really important for a PD to, this is great advice. It's really important for a PD to be on the air, to prove to the staff that you can be on the air, to prove to yourself that your formatics work and all that stuff. So I was like, it's like that old uh, cliche about those who can't teach, like you're proving that you still can. Oh yeah. And I did basically every Saturday when I was at cube, I did the hangover zone. I did, I think it was like 9am to 1pm on Saturdays. Yeah. And I knew Every jock who I'd ever air checked at the station was like listening to make sure that like I could, you know, kind of walk the walk and I just, you know, was not going to not crush it. There are a few periods where I did like we were between jocks and I did afternoon drive for, you know, kind of a few months at a time. But that was where I, I kind of just really became, you know, finally made my decision. I just wanted to be, you know, a programmer and not, you know, a personality. So it sounds like you got the best of both worlds. You got to the dominant station. You didn't have to do too many air shifts. And you were, like you said, playing Dr. Dre, not Celine Dion. Yeah, and it was great. And I would have washed out, as amazing as it was and as fortuitous as it was for me to get in that position, I would have washed out in a second if it hadn't been for JPZ. And if it hadn't been for, like, how seriously we took ourselves, like, actually, there are two kind of really, you know, kind of pivotal moments in my, you know, kind of cube tenure. I had a consultant named Jerry Clifton, who kind of is one of the two people who has taught me the most outside of JPZ in my career. I know the name, yeah. This was a serious guy. Jerry Clifton is a radio genius, invented formats, programmed everywhere. And I was scared shitless of him. Like, he's a <laughs> scary guy. He, he really can be a, like a scary guy. And so the first time I met Jerry, we decided to go out to get coffee. And we're walking up Queen Anne Avenue in Seattle to go get coffee. And he says to me, like, apropos of nothing, he says, kid, got yourself a good job. You probably got yourself a two-year job. And I'm going to tell you why. And I'm like, okay, Jerry. Ooh. He's like, you're going to be here two years, either because you try to be everybody's best friend, tell them what they want to hear, and then get swung after two years for being an ineffectual loser. Wow. Like, okay, that sounds terrible. He's like, or you're going to be here for two years. You're going to do whatever it takes to win. You're going to go up somebody's ass sideways when they're going to get sick of you and they're going to swing you because they figure you're too much trouble than you're worth and they could do it without you. Wow. And I'm like, okay. He's like, the only question is, which position do you want to be in when you go looking for your next job? God. And I was like, oh, I got it. Yeah. I told the story to somebody on my team recently and he was like, Mike, have you ever thought about the fact that you might've been trapped in an abusive relationship <laughs> with your mentor? <laughs> I was like, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't know one fucking thing about anything if it wasn't for Jerry Clifton. Like, that's how much I idolize this guy. Ask anybody on my team. I, I talk about him to this day. I had a radio mentor who was kind of a sociopath, but he taught me more than I would ever learn anywhere else outside, again, JPZ, of, about radio and stuff I still use to this day. So it's funny. You, sometimes you take that trade off to have somebody who's you might be a little scared of, but they give you some really good advice. Yeah. I remember, I think it was Larry Barron pulling me aside when I was a PDZ89 and telling me that people thought I was kind of a tyrant and that I should back off a little bit. <laughs> Incredibly important lesson to learn. I was definitely, did not have the, 
you know, kind of EQ to be running anything probably as a 19 year old. Yeah. But who among us doesn't look back at those days at 19 and 20 and say, boy, if I'd known that what I know now, I would have handled that situation a little bit differently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I was listening to one of your podcasts with someone who I, I haven't met, like Liz Doyon Gupta. Yeah, she was super smart and self-aware about like she ta- told the story about the your mother doesn't work here email that she sent out. And I was like, I definitely hung that that sign <laughs> you know, kind of on the wall of the senior staff office. And uh, it was great to hear. But but kind of anybody who probably was at Z and I with me would kind of laugh now at the notion that I ever was going to be the kind of guy who like gave everybody what they wanted and, you know, kind of told everybody what they wanted to hear. Like I probably wasn't ever going to be that guy, but it was like my first month on the job and Jerry just like laid it all out for me. And I'm really glad he did. And then there was a second thing that I think also feeds back to Z. This is probably the most important thing that ever happened to me in my career. Jerry comes back a couple years later and I'm not scared of him anymore. Like, I kind of got him and realized that he was just sort of testing me a lot and all that. And, you know, had a six share. We were number one. We'd kind of, you know, just sort of come out of a rough patch. And Jerry comes to town and it was like, you know, just sort of lollipops and rainbows, like literally did not say one bad thing huh. about the radio station. We would drive the market, listen to all the radio stations, go into record stores, kids ask your mom. <laughs> Um, and walk the store and see what people were buying and talk to the clerks, which is another thing I learned at, at JPZ. There was a guy named James Cole who owned Cole's Music World, which became a sponsor of the station. And Jem and James and I would go see him like every week to find out what yeah. was selling, you know, kind of in his little store down on like Fayette Street or, or I think it was. But the, I learned that. And then, but Jerry was passionate about just running the market. So not one bad thing to say about it. It's like the last day of his visit. We go in to see my bosses, who are Bob Case, who hired me, who'd been kind of kicked upstairs to a VP job. Michael O'Shea, who owns the radio station. And they have old home week. And they're like, okay, Jerry, tell us what you think about the radio station. And Jerry goes, well, I've always thought that a great top 40 station is like the hottest party in town. And if this is what a party's like in Mike's house, I'm glad I'm not invited. Oh! <laughs> Yeah, so everybody laughed. It's a, it's a great line. I like basically sunk into the couch. I remember where I was sitting. I like basically just sunk in. If I could have crawled in between the cushions of that couch, I would have done it, right? And so everybody laughed and they, they kind of talked about, you know, kind of what was wrong. And I remember like Jerry said, he's like, the music sounds good, but it sounds a little too good. It's like a jukebox. And everything I hear is basically on the nose and I never get surprised or delighted in any kind of wow. unexpected way. And, you know, Mike kind of needs to loosen up a little bit. Huh. The DJs sound good, but they sound like they're being air checked to within an inch of their life. And Mike needs to like loosen up because if he manages them that way, they're never going to do anything that surprises him like wow. pleasantly or unpleasantly. Like he needs to just learn how to like, you know, kind of have fun. And, and Michael O'Shea sort of, he eventually says, he's like, you know, you're right, Jerry, and it's a really good point. I'm sure Mike's going to kind of take this all in. But, like, come on, the kid's doing something right. He's number one with a six share. And then Jerry goes, you know what? I've heard a lot of number one stations that I didn't think were great stations, but I've never heard a great station that wasn't number one. Wow. Mike needs to stop worrying about the ratings and start worrying about being great. Wow. And then he'll be something. It's unbelievable, right? And I was like, oh, fuck, I get it. I fucking get it. I get it. I had been, you know, kind of part of the best party in town. Like those, those years at Z89, like we were yeah. kind of the flamethrower. Like I knew 
how to do that. I knew how to access that. Like I knew I had that gear. And I definitely, you know, kind of never would have if it wasn't for Z89 and the kind of, I think I heard, it was like Howie Denneroff and a couple of people who talked about, I think Jane Nackless too, talked about like the perfectionism. Like we were so hardcore. Ruthless. And that perfectionism, uh, yeah, the perfectionism I got from Z89 was what kicked in at that point. I was like, I know how to do this. And kind of the ratings just got better. And I think we, the next year we had a seven share and the Michael O'Shea took us to Vegas on a bet because he had bet me that I, I couldn't get a seven share, <laughs> that we couldn't get a seven share. <laughs> Cube was really the sort of the furnace and Jerry Clifton was sort of the pressure that kind of, you know, really, you know, kind of set me down the path of the programmer, you know, that I probably am now. But like the 89 lit the fire. There's, you know, kind of no two ways about it. And look, T-Bone, you're very quick to give credit to your coworkers at JPZ and to Jerry Clifton and to the people around you. But look, you're pulling a six and a seven chair in Seattle as a mid 20 something year old PD. Like some credit needs to go to your abilities and what you were able to do with that radio station. Where did you go from there? I just celebrated like four years at Amazon and it's the longest that I've ever been anywhere since Syracuse. Wow, okay. I, I looked it up on my own LinkedIn and it was like three years and nine months at Cube. <laughs> and, and then I went to VH1 and I did that for a couple of years and kind of figured out that I didn't like TV because TV sort of compromises the music. In radio, you can just walk down the hallway and put stuff on the air, right? And DJs can kind of bring things to life with theater of the mind. As anybody who's you know kind of worked in TV knows, you have to like actually shoot it yes you have to like <laughs> hire people and like have talent and like shoot things i would make changes to the you know music the video hours or whatever and it would be on the air three days later right yeah, like we would do yeah. the music for pop-up videos or whatever and it would be on next season mm. and so i've just felt like music television was like not enough music and too much television <laughs> this is 25 years ago as opposed to where it is now all right yeah Oh, yeah. No, totally. It was there were probably like six or eight video hours a day on the station and they've got the worst ratings and we only really did them so that we could get the artists to do divas, you know, yeah, kind of, okay. or whatever. And then I went to Epic Records after that. And like my version of Bob Costas was like, I could tell you what label any artist was on when I was a kid. I would memorize the addresses from the labels of you know i knew warner was in burbank and i knew epic was the you know the clashes label like yeah and pearl jam's label and it was kind of all i wanted to do so i went there as like a kind of senior vice president and kind of realized the level of politics at a major record company was <laughs> definitely not for me you know kind of all of the tough love from jerry clifton notwithstanding i was there for a few years and i worked for dave matthews label and then started a little label, did management and did management kind of on my own for a little while, which is like what I like to call the eat what you kill business model. Like that was terrible. <laughs> and kind of every time I, I sort of needed a gig, I would just go back to programming, you know, kind of radio stations. It was the one thing that I could always do, you know, to get myself paid. Do you feel like your time at VH1 and your time at record labels made you a better PD because you understood the other sides of the business? Yeah, there's actually like a, there's a really great book called Range by a guy named uh, David Epstein. And it's kind of the subtitle is like why generalists triumphed in a specialized world. Like, ah, I get bored. Like, let's be honest. I kind of get bored and I like, you know, kind of find my next challenge. One of the things I really like about working at Amazon is that if I get bored, I can change my job without changing my job. Right. Like yeah. there's just so much to do. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why I've really liked working in tech. But I would just sort of get bored. I'd, it wouldn't be challenging enough. I remember 
somebody who I really love is a friend of mine, Greg Strassel, who was the head of programming at CBS at the time, who I've worked with since. And he was like, T-Bone, you're a great PD. Your problem is you care too much about music. <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, Greg, I get what you're saying, but like, I've never seen that as anything but, a, you know, kind of an asset. And I'm not going to let you start making me think of it as a, like a liability at this point. I love music. Like, I think our customers, listeners, you know, kind of love music. Um, so to me, music was always my real passion. I literally, I've never made one dollar as an adult that wasn't in a music related job. I'm so lucky. But I really wanted to try to do like every job that I could for just a little while. There was a few, one summer when I was a manager, I realized I'd never tour managed before. And I had a band called Hi Highs who got offered a tour opening for Vampire Weekend. Mm -hmm. Those gigs, those support slots on big tours pay like 200 bucks a show. Like that's it. <laughs> and the bands need to get tour support from their label, the opening acts in, in order to be able to go. And so I kind of told my band, I'm like, look, I'll TM for you because that's going to save you whatever, 500 bucks a day that you don't have. And so I got in a van with my Australian band and like drove them around the country wow. opening for, for Vampire Weekend one summer. And that was like, whatever, 2013. But I just really wanted to tick the box of being a tour manager. And it was actually one of the most fun jobs I've ever done because basically like the goal is to make the show happen at the end of the day, right? And if you get from, you know, whatever, Boston to Toronto, and the show, which goes through Syracuse, that was when I stopped on Marshall Street and showed my band where Acropolis was. R.I.P. Acropolis, yep. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it's like in every other gig, especially in what we would in radio, the it can be sort of a little bit slippery. Like, where's the bar? Is it six share or seven share? But the thing about tour managing bands, like if the show happened, it was a good day. Doesn't matter how the sausage is made. 100%. So that was super fun. And uh, yeah, I've, I've really loved every, you know, kind of stop along the way. And uh, to answer your direct question, there is this thing where I think now, just because when anything comes up, because I've in the past thought about something as a programmer, thought about something as a label guy, thought about something the way the artist will think about it, thought about something as a manager, the processing just happens like really fast. And being able to empathize, right? Yeah. Like, you know, kind of gets you to a place where the artist is never going to say yes to that. But if we sort of find out what the artist wants to have happen, like we'll be, you know, kind of way more likely to, to get to a yes. Like it's 100% true. And I, I wouldn't, like my wife, you know, of 21 years, God bless her. Like, I think my resume drives her a little bit crazy. Like she <laughs> is pretty happy, you know, kind of I am where I am now. But yeah, I wouldn't recommend anybody <laughs> to kind of have a, a career of, I get bored, I leave, but it's kind of served me pretty well. And, and to your point, T-Bone, you really did follow music after that. I mean, even outside of radio to Apple and now to Amazon. Tell me about your time getting into the tech space and, again, still staying connected to music. Yeah. I mean, another super important thing, my intern at Cube, I ran the Cube music meetings a lot like I ran the JPZ music meetings, like they always were. Of course, the intern was in the music meeting every week. The intern at Cube was a woman named Julie Pilot who... She might be the only person in my career who ever pushed me far enough to the point where I had to say, because I'm the fucking program director. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Julie. And Julie went on to be the music director of Cube and the music director of Kiss in LA. And she ended up being at Beats Music, working for Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. And then when the merger happened with Apple Music, she stayed on to launch Beats One. Mm -hmm. And so... Always be nice to the interns. Uh, Julie, you know, kind of offered me a job at Apple Music and on Beats One. 
I wasn't there for a sign on, but it was like a month later okay. and they kind of knew what they needed fixed. And so they kind of brought me in. It was one of those things where it was like, we need somebody to do programming. We need somebody for production. We need somebody for editorial. And I was like, I will program is my thing. And then it was like, okay, we hired you, but now you have to do all three jobs. And it was freaking amazing. I was doing editorial stuff and I hadn't really kind of had to access any of that stuff since I was at Newhouse. And that was really fun. Beats One was just sick. Zane Lowe is the sort of smartest broadcaster and best on-air talent that I've ever been around, like hands down. And he was the most influential person on me since Jerry Clifton. When you say programming at Beats One, tell me what that looks like for someone who might not be familiar with the platform. Beats One, which is now Apple Music One, was a 24-7 ephemeral streaming service, right? It was basically an online radio station. And we had three studios, one in London, one in New York, one in L.A., uh, we had a 24-7 schedule to fill. So much like when I was at, you know, kind of VH1, where programming meant filling the schedule, part of programming was, you know, kind of just deciding with Zane, like, what was going to be on when, like, figuring out the schedule. And we had artist-led shows. Um, Drake had a show. Frank Ocean had a show. Travis Scott, Elton John. I had a team of producers. There were, like, 20-something producers around the world who would make these long-form radio shows okay. with artists. It, it was amazing. Zane was an anchor. Ebro was an anchor. We had live DJs. We had we did that thing where before I got there, they had hired like 30 influencers <laughs> and they were going to make them like the DJs. Oh, and then boy. that was kind of the, the first, that, yeah, literally, that was the first thing Zane said to me was like, fix it. <laughs> and I was like, look, if I had, if I was at a station, there'd be like one DJ who was this green and they'd be, on every night and I would be air checking with them like every day. There's 30 of these people and they're in three different cities. Like, what am I going to do? When will corporate, and I go back to radio when I say this, when will corporate understand you're better to hire somebody with talent than who has a big Instagram following? Yeah, I do think that there is like, Zane was like, it looks like you're getting on a plane, Tierney. So I was literally, I air checked everybody, literally air checked everybody. And some people were like, I don't want to work this hard (laughs) and just peaced out. There are others who are still on the air at Apple Music One that if you, you know, kind of listen to them now, and I won't name names, but like you, they're great. And I do kind of believe that like you could teach somebody how to be a DJ, follow a clock, like keep a break short, all that kind of stuff. You can't teach someone how to be cool and like passionate about music and have something to say that anybody would, you know, kind of care about. One of the things I had to say to Zane was you can't help these people. Like you thinking that you can teach them would be like Michael Jordan teaching your son how to play basketball <laughs> and shouting at him because he can't dunk. Like, <laughs> I was an okay DJ, but I know what it's like to struggle and I know what it's like to need notes and I know what it's like to like get notes. You have to leave these people alone and just don't even talk to them. Like We'll see you know, kind of who can actually learn this. Everybody wants to be great, but if you don't sort of teach people what makes people want to tune in and what makes people want to tune out. And now I realized like we didn't have that at, at JPZ. We really didn't. Maybe it was because everybody wanted to be Bob Costas. Like everybody really <laughs> wanted to be on the mic. And it's just like to go back to like Gigi and like ERR, they were so good without even trying, but like learning, having to teach people how to talk on the radio who kind of had never done it before, but were kind of cool and had something to say. Like, that was a gig. I I loved that part of the job. Yeah, Beats One during that era from like 2016 to 2019, it was the most fun I've had in my career. A lot of those shows like are still on demand on that service and Mm -hmm. there are some great, 
great shows that we made there. And so now Seattle, Amazon comes calling. How does that go? I always wanted to get back to Seattle. Like the gig that I have isn't so much being like the program director of a streaming service. It's a big company. Sure. The sort of program director job is, you know, split up about five or six different ways. I always kind of say that the gig that I have is kind of like being kind of the lead of all the music directors. And I love that. Off-air MD, which I think I had, again, kids ask your parents. <laughs> there used to be off-air music directors. Yeah. Those are the best gigs I ever had. Like, I just loved, you know, those moments in my life. And so now I kind of just, I really get to think about programming music. And the great thing about streaming, when I was at MTV Networks, there had been a thing, again, where there were still people around who had launched MTV and they were really careful to let you know that you missed all the good shit. Oh, always. Yeah, always. And so, yeah, I kind of feel like streaming is still pretty new and the rules are kind of still being written. There are a lot of things that are really different than uh, than radio. First start, our customers are subscribers, right? They're like not going to probably cancel their subscription because there's a Latin music song on the all hits, you know, kind of <laughs> playlist, right? Like if anything, they'll just skip it and go to the next song or they'll go to another station or playlist. And those are our stations and playlists. They're not punching out and going to the competition. So that sort of scarcity mentality, that kind of fear of we can never have anybody, you know, tune out in, you know, kind of this world. It's more like, you know, let them skip. They pay to skip. Like if they don't like something, why shouldn't they skip it? You know, it's kind of, you can see the Gen Z customers, like the extent to which they skip, like would just make you want to quit your job. They're, if you've ever been in a car with one of them, yeah. Oh yeah, no, totally, 100%. And they kind of skip to add, they sort of hack our programming to just get stuff into their library. So it's like skip, skip, add, skip, add, skip, 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 add. Wow. Yeah, it's just a, a new kind of customer behavior, but it changes the entire dynamic of how to, you know, kind of think about putting music together, you know, for the customers when it's not just like, well, Cube's pretty big and everybody's here and, you know, kind of new music is a tune out. Like, it's just, it's kind of the opposite of that. And it's been, you know, super fun and kind of a really great challenge. T-Bone, you're teeing me up for something I've been dying to ask this whole podcast, which is talk to me about where the music industry is in terms of radio versus streaming right now. And we've talked about this in, you know, with people in the podcast who still work in radio or have worked in radio. You're kind of at the forefront of having, you know, been a successful program director for so long, but now also in your role at Amazon, you're seeing where things are going now here in 2023. Talk to me about radio's relevance and the music industry and where all that sits right now from your eyes. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a simple thing. There's like a virtuous circle with the sort of life cycle of music, right? It all starts at streaming, right? The store is going to turn tonight, like kind of Thursday turns into Friday and all the new music comes out and all of our programming will be brand new and all of the new music will be in some of our playlists and stations, right? Like we reinvent ourselves every Friday when all the new music comes out. Wow. And nobody in radio thinks that way, right? Like radio might react when there's a new Foo Fighters or when there's a new Adele, but nobody expects it to. Like everyone expects all the music to start out at streaming, and that's like the first sort of bottom quadrant of the circle. And then radio watches to see what happens, you know, kind of it's streaming. And then if something kicks in, it's streaming, they'll pick it up, right? And that's the second quadrant of the circle. And it gets to a point where it really stops working for us. Like it's not new anymore. It's yeah. streaming and everything kind of, it just sort of falls off a cliff right when the labels are trying to get it to kick in at radio. They have a trick now that you probably noticed where that's when they'll drop a new version of the song with like 
Demi Lovato on the vocal. A featured artist remix. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. It's all to get the, you know, the kind of streaming to be fresh again while it goes on at radio. And then the fourth quadrant is when something comes all the way home. And then it's just like streaming, getting played on the radio. It's like literally bigger than it's ever been. And the, that's like the Bad Bunny, Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, you know, kind of territory. Like not everything gets there, but it's really hard. And it's kind of complimentary, but it's based on the fact that literally no one expects radio to play new music. And I would posit that probably no one in that audience really expects to hear it that much. Well, I'm sure you've seen all the numbers, you know, talk formats are doing well, news talk and sports because compared to music, you know, and you're talking about Gen Z and people who did not come up listening to the radio like you and I did. How does music radio stay relevant at this point? I mean, it might be too late. Like, I don't know. The challenge is that I don't think they can get back to where they would need to be to kind of push the reset button. That's kind of what I worry about is that when you have young customers who crave novelty and like the new, new, mm -hmm. and you're built on like, well, we have one or two slots a week, right? Yeah. There's no, you know, kind of flipping a switch on that. There's no way to kind of deliver on the, the expectations. So I think it has a role, but it's certainly like, a diminished one. And I, I just kind of worry if there has been just too many decades of, you know, kind of cost cutting. Neglect. And, yeah. And, and just no innovation, right? What was the last new music format at radio? I mean, it might've been rhythm crossover or alternative or triple A or, or like the, the hip hop throwback type stations, maybe a little bit, but yeah. That's just like oldies with hip hop. Yeah. It's literally like, you know, kind of here's an oldies format, but instead of, you know, whatever the Beach Boys, it's got Tupac and Dre, yeah. LL on it. Yeah. Not exactly innovative. And now like, you know, kind of all the stuff that's going on with AI and large language models and, you know, kind of machine learning. It's, I really do feel like this is going to be the most disruptive technology since file sharing uh, 20 years ago. It's just going to make it, you know, sort of easier than ever for kind of the robots to kind of take over. And I was actually just texting with Hollywood Hal about this. Like on the one hand, I worry that like the only way for the radio has left to meet its margins is to like turn it all over to the robots. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of if you have artificial intelligence creating all the music logs, which, by the way, artificial intelligence is going to create all the music logs. Right. And then you have voice modeling so that artificial intelligence is basically doing all the DJ shifts. And by the way, voice modeling will make it so that, you know, kind of artificial intelligence can do all the DJ shifts. To timestamp this, we're recording this on April 27th. And I'm sure by the time this airs, probably in the fall, it's going to be even more, you know, proliferating everywhere than it is at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't really care what, you know, a lot of work you're in. I, have, I had a friend who I was just hanging out with who was a lawyer and I was just showing him what large language models are going to mean for contracts and, and boilerplate templates and all that stuff. And it's just like, lawyers are like that's never going to be the same again like if you're kind of not tapping into what llms mean for kind of the future of work probably should i i kind of always joke that like i believe eventually like you know kind of artificial intelligence is gonna make me obsolete like i used to think that it was like gonna be safely after i was retirement age and all that but I think it's really like if people aren't thinking about, it, especially in music and radio and especially students, if you're not thinking about like kind of what the actual need for kind of humans is going to be in a world where more and more of the tactical work just gets turned over to machines, like it's not going to be in you know, a kind of a fun time to be trying to have a career. 
That's fair. I don't want to leave it on the. Uh, I don't want to leave it on the robots are all taking over. <laughs> robots are all taking over. They are. Yeah. Uh, ah. So so let me ask you this final question. Give me a funny story or two if you could think from your time at JPZ. You've got 15 years of alumni that you've interacted with. So give when you were there. So yeah yeah yeah. Give me a funny story or two that comes to mind. Most of my like funny haha stories involve like the accidental airing of curse words and yep. usually they involve EWR. If there is a more explicit sentence than the one that I will not repeat, but that I unwittingly helped EWR air when he was doing the zappy hour. I think he was doing, he had a bit called the nude line and he asked for my help cleaning something. And instead I inadvertently uh, aired it like the dirtiest oh, part I aired instead of this of a listener call or this was of a listener call. And it was like filthy, had probably six of the seven words in it. Oh my and God. Was, yeah. Oh yeah. Tell me off the air and we're done recording. Yeah, 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 totally. But that kind of made me remember, like, EWR, I was on before him. He was doing the zappy hour, like, four to seven on Fridays. That was mm-hmm. his show. I must have yeah. been filling in for somebody. I was doing one to four. And EWR rolls in at, like, whatever, 4.06 after I've run his top of the hour and segued the first couple of records. And he's like, <laughs> T-Bone, man, sounding so good today. I was, like, listening to your entire shift. I'm like, oh, great, great, EWR. He's like, and I don't mind telling you, I was doing the nasty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, later, E-dubs. Thanks for the... Uh... Thanks for the visual. Actually, yeah, that might actually be the highlight. Happy Dave name checking me was pretty good, but E-double-R doing the nasty to my Friday 1-4 shift was... Uh, that's pretty high praise in, indeed. All right, little afternoon delight. <laughs> Mike Tierney, T-Bone, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It was really great uh, hearing all the stories you have. Congratulations on all your success. And, you know, on behalf of the alumni, thanks for all you've done and continue to do for us. Dag, seriously, I can't thank you enough. This has been absolutely amazing. The pot, catch it up, things that, you know, things I remember, things that I miss hearing, you know, kind of whether it's Kendall B or Dion Summers or like some of the people who came after me and catching up on chapters of the station's history that I didn't know about. It's been It's been really fun, so thanks for the opportunity to do this, and thanks for working so hard on this pod. I appreciate that. Thank you. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.